0: For the worship of God through the preaching of His Word. Let's turn again to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue in our sermon series through the Beatitudes. And Matthew chapter 5, just one verse. Verse 4 will be our focus today. Matthew 5 verse 4. Let me remind you of what we have seen so far in our study of the Beatitudes. Remember that Jesus is opening up the Gospel of the Kingdom. This Gospel of the Kingdom is the inbreaking of the new creation. And it's evidenced by a particular spirituality. The Kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is evidenced not by outward Worldly, secular, earthly, physical things, but by a particular spirituality embodied in the Beatitudes. This particular spirituality is the working and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works these things in kingdom citizens. In this respect, then, the first and most foundational aspect of new creation life is what we looked at last week being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is a recognition that we are, in and of ourselves, beggars. We are all beggars, as Luther said on his deathbed. We are beggars, it is true. As sinners, we are spiritually bankrupt. We are entirely dependent upon the grace and mercy and provision of God. That is the some in substance, the heartbeat of the Christian life. We are poor in and of ourselves. God is rich and plentiful. We must run to Him in our need to be provided for what He has called us to do in salvation and in the Christian life. But there is more to being poor in spirit than, than, than just this. And that's where this second beatitude comes into play. And it's one thing just to know intellectually That we are poor in spirit. That we are impoverished in spirit. But it's quite another thing to then mourn it. We know it, but do we mourn it? For when we do see ourselves as spiritual beggars, the second beatitude points us to how sacred grief will then naturally follow. Stir us to mourn our condition before God. So keep this in mind then, this connection between poor in spirit and mourning, which we will consider more in a moment, but let us first read the text, Matthew 5, 4, let's read verses 1 through 4 for the context, brethren, this is God's word, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. Pray with me again. Oh, Father, we, we stop again to pray. We stop again just to pause for a moment. After hearing these words, Lord, we stop to acknowledge... It is an awesome thing to hear the voice of God in Scripture. So we stop and ask that we would not just hear them, but Lord, that you would teach us and lead us into a true knowledge of them. Father, as your word is preached, we pray that you would give us sober minds and receptive hearts. We pray that you would form us mind, will, and emotion. Lord, form us in ways that are submissive to You. We would glorify You that You might lead us into the blessed life. Life in union with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most prominent themes that we continue to see when we consider the Beatitudes is that, you know, just like Jesus went into the temple and flipped over the tables of the money changers, here He is intentionally... And emphatically flipping over our ideas about the kingdom and the good life. I think this is perhaps never more obvious than when we come to this second beatitude here. There's no doubt that it's intentionally um, counterintuitive. It's intentionally, maybe even provocative. Because we could legitimately translate this verse as happy are those who grieve, happy and flourishing and desirable and enviable are those who are overcome with sorrow. See what I mean here about the paradox? About this, this radical flipping over of our own ideas of what is good, what is right, what is desirable in life. You see how Jesus is kind of, you know, poking His finger in the eye of what we all naturally consider to be the good life? You see how baffling this is. Maybe even ridiculous this would sound to an unbeliever. Happy are those who are overcome with sorrow. Brother, you know we live in a world uh, where we all place a high value on, as the Declaration of Independence says, pursuit of happiness. We all live in a world where happiness is often considered to be, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Be joyful. Be glad. Celebrate. Don't worry. Be happy. Leave your troubles behind. Don't get too down on yourself. Stay positive. In fact, of course, there's no doubt that the pursuit of happiness is particularly dominating of America in general or the Western Western civilization in general. There's a lot of evidence for this. Maybe take the entertainment industry, television and movies and and video games and social media and 24-hour news channels. I mean, these things dominate our culture because we do feel this constant need to be amused. This constant need to feel some sort of happiness and pleasantness. That's what entertainment is really all about. Think as well of maybe... um, The multi-billion dollar industry of psychiatric treatment and medications. You know, the percentage of Americans on some sort of antidepressant medication continues to skyrocket year after year. It says nothing uh, to um, even the abuse of drug or alcohol, uh, drugs, or other alcohol, or other things as well. It shows that we are obsessed with escaping sadness of any sort. Give me a pill so I will not be sad anymore. Distract me in any way so that I won't feel any sorrow. So we run to vices like Alcohol or drugs or incessant entertainment. Or maybe we run to hobbies or social pursuits. Anything to forget the problems of this life. Anything to escape. Anything not to feel so bad and so sorrowful. Nobody likes a life marked by sadness. Nobody wants or even sees how a life of mourning could be good. Or blessed. To an unbeliever, these words sound ridiculous. But unfortunately, it's not just the world out there that seems to have a problem with these words because I think we could say a lot of the same regarding the church, too. The church is pretty resistant to being sad. Have you ever heard the term um, that's a happy, clappy church? We say that's the sanitized church term that's going around nowadays for these types of congregations happy clappy church typically it refers to churches that really it's just one big party it's all about joy it's all about happiness it's all about celebrating positivity celebrating freedom and grace and love and all the positive and joyful aspects of the christian life Oftentimes, when I think about these churches or I I see some of the songs they sing or or their worship services, I'm reminded of of the Lego movie and and that popular song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Everything is awesome when you're living out the dream. Following this, I think, though, many Christians in our day also tend to believe that always being joyful and happily and bubbly is what the Christian life is all about. You know, well, my sins are forgiven and I have eternal life. What do I have to be sad about? If you really believe the gospel, you wouldn't be sad either. They walk around with a perpetual smile on their face, always upbeat, always positive about things. And In fact, I think it, it can even be said that in our day, many Christians think that acting happy and joyful is how we attract non-believers to the gospel. As if, well, they'll know us by our joy or by by our positivity. And because the gospel is so great, there's never any reason to be sorrowful or depressed, much less mourn. What do we have to mourn about? Well, brethren, the truth is, happy, clappy churches... They're often happy-clappy because they never really talk about sin. Many of them have a very shallow and deficient, maybe even humanistic doctrine of sin. The gospel for those churches so often is just shaking off any hindrances uh, that might keep you from enjoying the blessed life. And and the Christians who elevate perpetual joy and positivity as if it's a fruit of the Spirit, so often they come across as superficial and fake. As if they don't live in the reality of owning up life in a fallen world. I think maybe they show that they don't have a real true concept of what spiritual joy rightly is. This, brethren, is where this beatitude comes into play. Jesus does not say, blessed are the happy. He doesn't say, blessed are the joyful. Blessed are those who can stand strong and stay positive in the face of life's difficulties. Rather, he says, blessed are the mournful. Blessed are those who are overcome with sorrow. Brother, there's a world of comfort in that. What I want you to see today is that mourning is an important aspect of our spiritual health. For it isn't just that those who mourn will be comforted. I want you to see that it is mourning itself that is the path to the blessed life. The mourning life is the blessed life. How so? Because mourning opens us up to receive the joy and comfort of the gospel. And it pushes us to seek refuge in God alone. And anything that pushes us into the arms of our Savior is good and blessed. That's what I want you to see from this passage this morning. We're going to follow a four-point outline to work through this today. I want to consider a couple of things that what Jesus means by mourning and what he means by comfort. But first, I want to start with what he does not mean. So first, what spiritual mourning is not. What it is not. If we were to define what it means to mourn, we would, you know, open up the dictionary. We would find that it simply refers to an exceeding measure of grief or sorrow. In many respects, it is an action. It is something positive. You know, circumstances are bad that make us sad. Those are realities that you know, we pass- passively experience. But the response to that is positive. Action. Mourning. In response to something coming upon me, I am actively performing this act of mourning. That's what it means to mourn. So, it's not just feeling sad because life is going difficult for you. This is a positive action. Like James, we read it earlier from James 4. Right? He says, He commands us, it's imperative. Mourn. Let your sorrow, be, uh, your happiness be turned to mourning. But here, though, this act of mourning, Jesus isn't just referring to those who simply mourn because life is difficult. You know, you, you lose someone you love, something bad happens to you, you go through a a difficult time. Uh, It's not just a physical act of of mourning or being sad that is blessed. There's there's lots of unbelievers who mourn in in the face of life's difficulties. What we need to remember here is that Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. Right? The inbreaking of the new creation kingdom. We talk about being poor in spirit. The blessing isn't just to those who are poor in general. Uh, Jesus will go on to talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The blessing isn't just for hungering and thirsting physically. Mourning here is in the same respect. This is a spiritual mourning that is in view. It is not just sadness in life. This is a mourning that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. This is a mourning that is not natural to sinful, natural man. So in this respect, we need to know it's not just being sad. It's not just being depressed. It's not a perpetual state of pessimism. This is spiritual mourning, and and spiritual with a capital S, I might say here, meaning produced in us by the Holy Spirit. So, because this is spiritual mourning, uh, we need to read this and understand this is not just talking about, you know, being downcast. A moment ago, I spoke of the happy and bubbly Christian and the happily clappy and celebratory churches, you know, uh, where worship is a never-ending party. You know, if we were to ask them or challenge them with those things, you know what many of them would respond with, right, toward us? They would say something like, well, at least we're not Frozen Chosen, At least we don't walk around gloomy like Eeyore, right? Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) At least we're not so cold and miserable like a Puritan who doesn't know how to have fun. And brethren, I, I think there's some legitimate criticism in that. Joy ought to be an aspect of our worship. And there is a great danger in always being grim and serious and just naturally pessimistic about things. You know, the Puritan and the Calvinist stereotype, it has some truth to it. There's a problem if we're never happy. There's a problem if we don't know um, how to have fun or to, to, uh, to be joyful or even enjoy times of levity, cutting up, always being heavy and serious, um, always being depressed. That's not a mark, ultimately, of spiritual maturity. It could be a mark of someone who's just self-absorbed. You know, just one chapter later here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to condemn the Pharisees who, um, he says, they disfigure their faces to always look gloom. They wanted people to see them as as sad and downcast and just so serious about everything. So people would think, oh, that's a really spiritual person. Jesus says, woe to you for that. So when we come to, you know, blesser those or mourn, we need to understand what it is not. It does not mean that we can never have joy or laughter or fun. In fact, you know, the scriptures, Proverbs 17, 22 says, joy, laughter is, is good medicine. And that a crushed spirit, someone who's always, you know, Eeyore, dries up the bones. In fact, I, I mean, I could preach a sermon on this. I think that, you know, laughing and cheerfulness are an underrated aspect of our spiritual health. If you can't laugh and enjoy good times with other believers, um, that's not that's, that's not a sign that you have. That's not a sign of spiritual health. So we need to see first and foremost, Jesus is not saying that all of life must be this mourning and sadness and seriousness, as if we are a Puritan who doesn't know how to have fun. Rather, he's rebuking the notion that there's no place in the Christian life for mourning. He's rebuking the notion that mourning is not a regular part of the Christian life because it is and it should be. He's rebuking the notion that we should seek and expect happiness and joy and comfort all the time here on earth. He's rebuking those things. And so we need to know what spiritual mourning is not. It's not of this world. It's produced by the the Holy Spirit. It's not incessant depression or sorrow with no place for joy and laughter. And as we heard earlier from James chapter 4, it's not mourning because your sinful desires aren't met. There is a place. We're unbelievers, or in our sinfulness, we mourn because our desires, which are worldly and earthly and sometimes sinful, are not met. That is not spiritual mourning. That is not what Jesus is speaking about here. So what is it then? Well, two aspects of this mourning I want to draw out. Secondly then, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. That's first and foremost, what Jesus means here by mourning. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. As we'll see in a moment, there's more to this idea of mourning than just mourning over our personal sin, because that can be if that's all we ever do. That can be self-focused as well. But that is where spiritual mourning must start. It's never anything less than that. And again, I want you to think about this beatitude in relation to being poor in spirit. Being poor, we recognize that we are spiritual beggars before God. And so the reaction of this, the godly reaction of someone who sees that we are in every way impoverished by nature to do anything to save ourselves, the natural godly reaction of that is, is to mourn. Mourning over our sin and weakness is the godly response to the reality that we are poor in spirit. And as we'll see in a moment, mourning over our sin and weakness is the pathway, the gateway to experiencing deliverance from it. Before we get there though, I want to make an important clarification. You know, I've often referred to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as the gospel of the kingdom. And that is certainly true. I wouldn't say it so many times if I didn't believe it was true. But that must be balanced with the reality that there's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount about the death and resurrection of Christ. There really isn't much about substitution and atonement and justification by faith either. So we can't quite say that the Sermon on the Mount is the Gospel. Because the Gospel most specifically... Is the good news of what Christ accomplished in His death and resurrection and ascension, and yet at the same time, the gospel—excuse me—the Sermon on the Mount is part of the gospel. It can't stand alone. It needs the rest of the New Testament. It needs to be understood in light of the, 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 the fulfillment of the ministry of Christ. But in many ways, the gospel—excuse me—the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a necessary prerequisite. Of the gospel, what I'm trying to say is that the good news of Christ, His death and resurrection, will mean nothing to you if you are not poor in spirit. The fact that Christ died for your sins will mean nothing to you if you haven't properly seen them and mourned them. If you won't, if you don't see that you're sick, you won't seek the cure. So mourning is kind of preparatory for the gospel in a way. Mourning over our sin is the evidence that we have seen the depth of our sin, that we know it's a problem. Mourning over our sin is the evidence of a heart that is is convinced that I'm a greater sinner than I ever knew. And that my sin is not just a faux pas it is nothing less than a malicious personal attack against a holy righteous and loving god my brethren i want to ask you in this respect how can you understand what the bible says about you and your heart desperately wicked seeking its own way, unable to do good apart from the grace of God, how can you hear those things and not mourn? How can you realize that you are utterly corrupt by nature and can do nothing spiritually good except by the mercy of God and not mourn? How can you see that when you sin, God withdraws His loving and comforting presence and yet not mourn? How can you see that when you sin, the name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers, and yet you not mourn? How can you face the reality that there is a war going on within your members and that when you sin, you don't just sin out of ignorance, but as a Christian, you sin against light and love and grace and mercy and long-suffering and patience and a Savior who left heaven's throne to die and suffer for you and your sin. How can you see those things and not mourn? The point I'm trying to make is that just like with being poor in spirit, nobody's a Christian who isn't poor in spirit. Nobody is a Christian who doesn't mourn over their sin. It happens first and foremost in our conversion, but it continues in the Christian life long after our conversion as well. The more and more we grow and mature as Christians, the more and more we will mourn over our sin. Just thinking about that reality is so painful to think about All the years that God has cared for you. How He's preserved your life and your health. How He hasn't repaid you according to your iniquities what they deserve. That He's shown you mercy and long-suffering and patience. Is there anything more painful to know that after all of that, we still sin against God? Brethren, if if your sin doesn't bother you, if you don't mourn it, that's something, that's an indication that there's something desperately wrong in your heart. Mourning over our sin is evidence that we really know who God is as holy and just and righteous and good. He is good. It's not just a fear of a righteous judge, but we sin against a God who is infinitely good to us mourning over our sin is evidence that we know our sin in heart as well that means we don't belittle our sin we don't make excuses for our sin we don't disregard it as unimportant we don't just say well i can't help it everybody's doing it it's no big deal god will understand right he's going to let it slide mourning over our sin is evidence that we don't blame others for our sin it was was a woman you gave me god the devil made me do it peer pressure Well, their sin against me caused my sin against them. It's really their fault. Mourning over our sin is evidence that we're not antinomians. As if sin and disobedience doesn't really matter. God's just love. He's going to understand. It's all good. It's all covered by grace. Don't worry about it. Mourning over our sin is evidence that we hate our sin. Rather than we can secretly continue to love it. Mourning of our sin evidences a heart that knows that sin is a big deal, that there's no such thing as a little white lie that doesn't hurt anybody. Mourning of our sin is evidence that we know God, that we know ourselves. And morning of our sin also rightly recognizes that it's not just a punishment Right? What our sins deserve that is bad and to be mourned over. Anybody can mourn over that. Right? Esau. He lost his birthright. Hebrew speaks that he mourned over it with many tears. But it wasn't a, a repentant mourning. It wasn't a godly mourning. He was just upset at the consequences. When we mourn over our sin, we're not just upset at the consequences, but we know we've grieved our Heavenly Father. And there's nothing more painful than that about times as maybe you've had as a child. I know there were many in my life when I sinned and I greatly upset my father. And when you see that you disappointed your father, that you brought shame upon him, that hurts more than anything else. That's the picture here. When we sin, we sin against God. Not an enemy, but one who loves us. We sin against one who's done no harm to us. We sin against one, not someone, another sinner who maybe deserves it, but a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son that that we might be saved. And so there's nothing worse to a Christian. Nothing more undesirable to a Christian than our own personal sin against our loving Heavenly Father. Even if you compare it with trials and sufferings, you know, Suffering and trials in this life, those things strengthen our faith. And they prepare us for eternity. And they glorify God. But our sin destroys our faith. Brings shame upon the name of Christ. So if we can mourn our earthly and and physical sufferings and trials, but we don't mourn our sin, we show that we don't understand the gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom. First and foremost, Jesus prescribes a blessing upon those who mourn over their sin. But secondly, uh, or thirdly I should say, uh, we need to move quickly here. There's another positive aspect to mourning. We mourn over our sin, but also blessed are those who mourn over the sin and the fall in general. So maybe mourn over the sin and fallenness of this world. I said it a moment ago, if all we do is mourn over our own sin, I can be evidence of an unhealthy self-focus or even a self-righteousness. Because sin and death and the curse are all around us. God's good creation has been spoiled by sin and this should cause us great grief. So if you mourn over your sin, how can you not mourn over the sin of the world? I think it was C.S. Lewis who was asked on a radio station one time, what's the problem with this world? And he says, I am. I'm the problem. Within my sinful heart are the seeds of everything that happens out there. If you don't see that, you're self-righteous. Everything. Let's go down the list. What do you see out there that, that is just heartbreaking? and evil and wicked. It's in your heart too, except for the grace of God. You are the problem in this world. I am the problem in this world. And so if we see that, we mourn not just our expression of sin, but even sins we don't struggle with, we see them out there, we mourn those as well. Again, like just think of, I mean, evidence all around us. I could just, you know, look at the state of our nation. How can you read the news and not mourn? How, how could you see what's going on? Um, you know, we, we might naturally want to call God's judgment down upon them and might say, you know, those people who are destroying our nation, this is horrible. But we need to start with mourning first. Because the root of all the problems out there are that God's law and God's name are being trampled in the streets. And so again, all the evidence I could point to... How could you look at the, the millions of infants murdered in the womb and not, how could that not drive you to tears? If you're indifferent to that, that's a problem. How can you look at the, that our government and, and it, how it so much it condones and encourages uh, the indoctrination and mutilation of children, transgenderism, sexualization, and the homosexualization of everything? The corruption, the materialism, the sexual immorality, the racism, the hate, the drug abuse, the covetousness, the rampant injustice, the corruption at every level of government and even society. How can you see these things and not be heartbroken? Christ is describing a blessing upon those who mourn even the sins of the culture, the sins of the world at large. And you know, just to be clear, it's not just the sin as well. It's just the curse. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He talks very little about sin itself. More, the book of Ecclesiastes is is just the, the the. the, the writer, the author, mourning and lamenting the effects of the fall. There's a curse on everything. And it's miserable. Think of how Jesus, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He grieved. He mourned. He wept because He came face to face with death. And the untold sorrow and suffering that the curse has brought upon this world. So, gospel mourning is when we see the sin and curse all around us and we cry out in pain to God. It moves our heart to weep. We know that it's all the result of sin. the same way, how can you, how could you look at your friends and loved ones who are outside of Christ? They turn away from the Gospel and not mourn. Is your heart not broken for them? How can you see the sin and divisions within the church? The prevalences of false Gospels and false teachers. The rise of secularism within the church. The increasing immorality and wickedness among those who profess Christ. How can you not see these things and groan? And grieve and mourn. Like Jesus who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem. Or the Apostle Paul who says, I tell you, with tears there are many who oppose the gospel. The prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, continually weeping and mourning over the sins of Israel. In fact, that reminds me of Ezekiel chapter 9. God sends armed men Um, through the city of Jerusalem and they're told to go through the city and mark the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations committed in the city of God. Those who were marked were spared and the rest were executed. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over the sin in society. Blessed are those who mourn over sin in general. Blessed are those who mourn the curse. This is the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. The kind of mourning that receives a blessing. The kind of mourning that is produced by the Holy Spirit. The kind of mourning that sees that God's good creation has been spoiled by human treachery. And we cry out, Oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Well, brother, more could be said here, but mourning over our sin and mourning over sin in general is what the Lord Jesus prescribes a blessing to here. But if we're going to get a full and complete picture of this, fourth and finally, we need to understand the comfort that is held out as well. So fourth and finally, true spiritual mourning leads to true spiritual comfort. Again, let me remind you that there is a sinful or an unbelieving sorrow, even for sin. Esau, Judas, both wept over their sin. 2 Corinthians uh, 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, no matter how much you grieve or how sorry you are for sin or the sin of this world, it means nothing without repentance. In fact, The sorrow that does not lead to repentance is probably better described as despair. Despair, even despairing over sin, that's actually unbelief. It's unbelief. And there's no blessing or comfort in unbelief. The tears, the mourning of blessedness can only fall from the eye of faith. Faith. Godly sorrow is in distinction from worldly sorrow because it drives us to God. And it drives us to Christ. Any grieving or sorrow that does not drive us to God in Christ is not godly sorrow. So we mourn, but we mourn not as they who have no hope. We cry out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then we arm ourselves with the beauty of the Gospel. Thanks be to God. and Jesus Christ will deliver me from this body of death. We mourn, but we mourn like the prodigal son. If you remember, he was in the pigsty, and he mourned not really because he was out of money, not really because he had nothing to eat, not really because he was suffering. He says... I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He mourned because he had offended his father. And what does he do? Does he stay there? Does he drown in the depths of despair and just say, woe is me. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm such a wretched creature. No. The mourning gets him, drives him to get up and run to his father. And he was received. That's the point here. True gospel morning, the morning that receives this blessedness, the morning that Christ is describing here is a morning that drives us to God as our only comfort. And anything that drives us to Christ is a blessing. Anything that increases our longing for the age to come is a blessing. As many of you know, my my dad, my own father, is on his deathbed. He's dying of cancer. I, one thing that really comforts me, it really sets an example for me, is how many times he has said to me, I can't wait to be in the presence of God because I'm so sick and tired of struggling with sin. That's a godly morning. The saints of God then are comforted now when they mourn because the Holy Spirit who is our comforter personally brings us comfort and sorrow in the midst of life's trials. That's part of what Jesus is referring to here. You're blessed. You're comforted because the Holy Spirit will come and comfort you and that's a comfort unlike anything else this world will provide. Drugs, alcohol, escape, hobby, distractions, amusement, entertainment, friends, sex, love, love, Excitement, traveling the world. great None of those things provide true comfort. The Holy Spirit, though, is promised and given to those who mourn. So Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn because the Holy Spirit will come and, 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 and pour out this comforting blessedness upon us here and now. We have God on our side. We have God with us here and now. And that is a, a comfort that is unlike anything in this world. Thomas Watson said, God only pours the oil of gladness into broken vessels. Those who are full and satisfied in and of themselves receive no such thing. That's an aspect of the comfort. But the other aspect is, although we are comforted now by the Holy Spirit, we will fully and finally be comforted later in eternity because we and we alone as children of God have the promise that God will wipe away every tear and every sorrow and every pain. So mourning is blessed because it opens us up as broken vessels to receive the oil of gladness, the Comforter Himself today. But it also sets our hearts in holy anticipation of that final and perfect and complete comfort that will be ours tomorrow in the blink of an eye when Christ returns and He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why mourning is the pathway To the blessed life. Well brethren. As we bring this to a conclusion. This morning. I just want to wrap things up. By pressing it upon you. Hope you've seen. You know the gospel sets us. To live within reality. That's why one mark. Of a mature Christian. That's why. the One qualification for an elder. Is sober mindedness. The gospel aligns us with reality. When we know God and we know ourselves, we don't have to act like, you know, fake it as if this world isn't full of constant sorrow and misery. Life is hard. Life is miserable at times. It overwhelms us at times. There's a freedom in that, acknowledging that. We don't ignore sin either as if it's not a big deal. It's the gospel that aligns us to live within reality, but it also the gospel that aligns us with what real and true joy is. We are free to mourn when life is hard, but we're also free to rejoice with a tempered rejoicing. Because even in this world of sin and misery, God sends us blessings. He sends us gifts, moments of grace that transcend anything in this world. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based upon how well or how poorly things are going. But it's when we see that Christ is with us, that He is for us, that He loves us, and that He is ushering us into His heavenly home. We can live within that reality. And we can see, yes, sin, it, it breaks my heart. But I cry out and I know I am forgiven. 1 John 1.9 And I cry out, Lord, sanctify me by your truth. And he answers that prayer. Cry out, Lord, heal the pain in this world. Send your gospel abroad. Come quickly and he will and he does answer. Brother, if you're sitting here this morning now and you're thinking, well, I don't really mourn much. I don't really, how do I do this? How do I become this type of person? Well, maybe your initial response is to think, I just, I need to go back to the law. I, I clearly don't understand my sin. Pastor Nathan just preached 10 minutes on, if you mourn, you understand your sin. Well, that, I don't really understand my sin. I need to run back to the law. Zechariah 12. They will look upon him who they pierced. And that's what brings true spiritual mourning. When with the eyes of faith we see, there is my sin born for me in the life and the death of my Savior. There is the heinousness of sin. There is the treachery of sin. There is the injustice of sin. I look upon Christ my Savior and I mourn Not upon the law, not upon myself, but I look upon Christ. Because there we find both the heinousness of sin, but the comfort and beauty that we are forgiven in Him. The mourning and the comfort comes when we fix our eyes upon Christ. And that mourning, that ongoing mourning of the Christian life leads to an unspeakable comfort and joy that nothing in this world can provide. We must go through a valley of tears to reach the paradise of God. And though the tears of the saints are bitter tears, they are blessed tears. And Christ himself, the man of sorrows, who never laughed, we have record of, but often wept. Christ himself, united with him, is both our mourning and our comfort. And, of course, our path to the blessed life. Brother, may God give us grace this morning to see our Savior, to mourn our sin as we ought, and to find comfort in our only refuge, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.